Hello and welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group, and once again, really happy to bring you another episode. So in today's show, I speak with Jason T. Smith, who is the author of Outside In, Downside Up Leadership. Fascinating book. I'm going to give him a shameless plug. I think everyone should go out and get it. And it is by our published by our good friends out at Major Street Publishing. So in the book, Jason shares a lot of ideas that are a little different, a little different and based on his experiences as CEO of Back in Motion Group. Now, to give you some context of the Back in Motion Group, they are generating over $50 million in revenue in over 100 locations in over seven states around Australia and also operating in New Zealand. So he's an active leader as well as an active author. So really think this is going to grab your attention. Really look forward to hearing what you think as well. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Well, welcome, Jason, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really happy that you've uh, taken the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about uh, who you are. Who is Jason T. Smith? Jason T. Smith, well, it's a, always a hard question to answer, and yet it should be the simplest. Uh, I'm, I'm a husband for 20 years to Paulina, father of four still young children. So our eldest is 14, down to our youngest that's seven. I am a physiotherapist by profession. I'm an accidental CEO, a bit of a reluctant businessman, a raging social justice advocate, a Harley Davidson rider. Oh, I'm going to try there, my and dad's a Harley rider. <laughs> I like I like him already, um, and you know life's full of adventure. Yeah, right. Give me a little bit of context if you can about the the, the Back in Motion Health Group, so that everyone knows sort of this accidental CEO. Yeah. What sort of business you're leading? The Back in Motion Health Group is Australia's largest and still fastest growing allied health network, and that sounds impressive. But of course, the beginnings of that story were very humble, very yeah. modest. Like all good brands, we started in the garage at home uh, 19 years ago. So next year we'll celebrate 20 years. That was just a very small physiotherapy practice in the suburb of Scoresby in Melbourne. For five years, I just toiled as a solo practitioner, uh, grinding away as a you know 23 or 24 year old. Then we stumbled across what became a clear prototype for a franchisable model, which is a really unusual tangent to a healthcare business. Nobody thinks of franchising in healthcare, but that's what we discovered and we accelerated along that path and uh, cutting a long story short, we have 110 locations, Australia and New Zealand. We're a physiotherapy centric model, but we provide other services. And our mission really is not to fix all the injuries and broken parts, although of course that's part of what we do. It is to empower people in optimal health. And that's a different story. Healthcare is uh, often a very reactionary model, and we have fallen in love with this idea of wanting to coach people in living at their physical best and uh, helping them not just live longer but live better. And so that's really the um, the DNA of our group. Well, we are here to talk about your book, Outside In, Downside Up Leadership. 
And because of your your, your business background, I, I might every now and then interject because I'm pretty interested in your business side as well as the book. But why did you decide to write this book? It's the second book I've written. The first book I wrote was called Get Yourself Back in Motion, which was a bit of a play on our brand name. And it was written very strictly for health consumers, for, for our clients, our patients. We have about 600,000 patients a year. And in 20 and 30 minute consultations, we couldn't deliver all of the advice we wanted to in, in, in that time envelope. And so I wrote a book, got some experience around writing and got a, a reputation as an author. When I started to do a lot of speaking around the country uh, on health and franchising, people discovered that we had a very unique business model or, or leadership framework inside our organization. Uh, for instance, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, but we didn't have titles and we had very strange descriptions of, of our workflow. And people just showed curiosity for that to the point that it distracted from the message that I had gone there to speak on, which might have been health or business or entrepreneurism or something else. And so it got to the point where so many people asked me to write a book and tell the story on our organisational journey that that became the impetus for outside in, downside up leadership. Great. Well, I am going to start off with a bit of an excerpt because uh, first of all, I'm going to do a number of shameless plugs on your behalf. Thank you. I, I think everyone should go and buy this book because I, I read a lot of leadership books and I think this one in particular has a lot of stuff which, as you say, is a little bit unique and I think that people can take a lot away from it. So I'm actually going to read an excerpt from the introduction because it just sort of it really resonated with me. Management is a form of technology and technology is constantly changing. Viewed this way, none of us should resist changes in the way organisations, people and resources are managed. There is no single way to manage your organisation except to the extent that you find the smartest technology to facilitate your overall desired result. So I'm curious about this idea of management is a form of technology. Mm. You talk to me a little bit about that. So we've moved through the you know, the, um, the different ages of development of, of society. So we, we've had this information age and this technology age, and arguably we're still square in the middle of it because we don't know where this is going to take us. So I think the metaphor of technology is, is really appropriate. People get technology. They realise that a phone a year old from today um, is probably going to be obsolete, that the features and functions and um, application of technology is so fast moving. Uh, it's Moore's law that says, you know, the microchips that go in our computers, they, they, um, they double in size and half in cost through these periodic cycles. And so technology is so aggressive. Uh, and it makes me wonder why we don't think about leadership and management structures, if we want to use that term, in the same way, because people are also changing at a fast rate. And yet we cling to and hold on to what I think obsolete methodology of how we empower people and engage them and connect. And we wonder why we don't get the best out of them. It's because we're using obsolete forms and, uh, and it's holding us back. And so that's, that's really why I opened the book with that technology metaphor. Uh, I think it opens people's minds to feeling safe and invited to challenge the conventions of typical hierarchical organizational structures and say, well, if everything else in the world around us is changing, why can't we change that bit as well? And in the process, get onto the adventure of releasing people into some new freedom. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I imagine that would be quite controversial if you talk that sort of language to, for example, the ASX listed organisations and more of the traditional ones, they'd be very adverse to that change. Well, I sit on the board of an ASX company yeah. and uh, I sit on boards of small not-for-profits and private enterprises. And of course, I have my own executive management team uh, for many years, in fact, nearly a decade inside back in motion before I shook things up and uh, turned us outside in and downside up. Yeah. And absolutely, it's confronting. It was confronting for me. I mean, I, I enjoyed for all of my time as the owner of my business, as the sole director and sole shareholder, absolute sovereignty. Uh, you know, I had my reserved car park, my corner office, I had unilateral decision making rights, uh, and whether people liked it or not, they respected it, and, uh, and that was kind of a, a very simple way of life. Doesn't mean I got all the decisions right, but it was a very simple way of life. So it was confronting for me too. So yes, we, we have to acknowledge that just because it's always been or just because it is now doesn't mean it's right. And let's just open our minds and our hearts to the possibility of something new and different. Technology provides us that horizon. I think leadership also does. And if we kind of see those two as a parallel metaphoric kind of existence, we, uh, we people get it. They get it really quickly. So I'm curious about this idea that you've got leadership versus management. It's one of the questions I get in the programs we run. So I'm curious, what's your, what's your uh, distinction you make between the two? Oh, it's a raging debate, isn't it, in literature? Um, you know, you could Google that little turn of phrase and get thousands of hits and, you know, the compare and contrast of attributes of the two. And in the book, I talk about this notion of overleading and undermanaging. So clearly, I come from a premise that the two are not the same thing. Um, we get lost in semantics on it, but for me, they're worlds apart. I actually define leadership by four attributes, uh, and uh, all of them could be a day's worth of conversation, but just at a, at a headline level, leadership is about setting direction, gaining commitment, facilitating change that ultimately leads to results. That, for me, is the quintessential core of leadership. Management, on the other hand, is so much more pragmatic in that it is just the efficient deployment of resources. And it's not like one is better than the other, they're just wildly different. Uh, and in my opinion, management should always serve leadership, but we often misunderstand management as a poor proxy or substitute for leadership, and that's where we get stuck in tradition and we end up vulnerable to the disruption of somebody else and our people don't feel empowered. You know, to break all that down, leaders create change and managers maintain. That, that's the oversimplified version. And I want to release more leaders. I want over leadership and far less management, only as much as necessary in the management stakes, but as much as is available in the leadership. In the book, you talk about this uh, idea of identity. And, and you've come up with, a, as you call it, an awkward acronym, MPVSV. Are you able to educate the listeners on this awkward acronym? It's a terrible acronym because you can't say it. It doesn't <laughs> roll off the tongue. It only works when it's written down. And for our team, uh, of course, it's affectionately known for what, for what we need it to be known for. But as I wrote the book, actually, I thought, wow, what a clumsy way of articulating some of these crucial identity statements. Um, 
So the acronym really just is uh, an abbreviation for Mission, Purpose, Vision, Strategy and Values. And of course, there's nothing new about this dialogue. There's, there's, I'm not creating uh, a new insight that these things are important. I think for us, all we're reinforcing in our own way of life and what I write in the book is that it's the axis of our organisation around which everything else revolves. And if you haven't done the work on your MPV, SV, then what are people working for? They're probably working for the man, but that's the least compelling reason to come to work. Nobody especially is motivated to make me rich or famous. Um, I'd rather them work for the mission. And we, we talk about that language. Don't serve the man, serve the mission. Uh, but if they don't have clarity around those identity statements of mission and purpose and vision and strategy and values, then there's too much confusion. So we spent a lot of time really drilling in and articulating those identity statements and keeping them simple too. So it's, it's kind of ironic. You spend so much time in conversation around them to land on only a few words that, that are trying to articulate the complexity of that soul expression. But they have to be simple because they need to be memorable. And you, you need to be able to call people's attention to it in an instant, not with a half an hour monologue. You need to be able to write it and fit it on a business card or a, you know, an, an ID card, not, not in a seven-page document. So we compressed it all. Um, it's very meaningful to us. The, the real challenge in the book is work out your own. Mm. Work out your own. Because we'll all have a different journey getting there, but I don't think there's any excuse to not having one or people will have no choice but to serve the more fickle elements of workplaces, mm. which is profit and ego and the man, and none of those things are satisfying. When in your, when did these come about? So did you, when you started Back in Motion, did you have this idea that, oh, I need to have some sort of value structure, or was it a few years in? When, when was your realisation that this was important? It sounds really strange to say this, and I actually allude to it at different parts in the book, but I have had three defining moments in my life and they have all significantly seeded or contributed to the framework of, of, of these identity statements. One was when I was 10 years old and um, I won't give you the long version, but as a 10 year old watching the cartoons on a Saturday morning and being confronted with images of the poorest of the poor young kids my age with distended bellies and you know fragile limbs and clearly malnourished um, I, I was struck with the unfairness of the world and I immediately pledged in my little heart that I wanted to do something about that. That moment, unknowingly at the time, has enormously influenced the identity of our organisation. Again, at, um, in my young 20s, when I was a graduate physiotherapist, working for other people, not yet really um, consumed with my own vision for back in motion, I had some experiences that significantly shaped how I would want to run an organisation if I ever had that opportunity. And then the third defining moment was um, actually the precursor to the book, which was when I came back from some long service leave and had clearly um, established a level of success in the business but watched it implode under a suffocating structure. And I realised then again that we had to reimagine what we believed in and who we wanted to be. So, so they were three distinct moments. And then peppered in between, of course, I do life with some wonderful, amazing people who have contributed their ideas along the way. 
But as the founder, uh, as the as the leader, as the guy who says this isn't a job, this is a calling, as the guy who's the chief of ultimate responsibility, you know, I've, I've got to take um, the initiative to really invest into those identity statements. One of the things which has actually resonated with me throughout the book is I've been able to take away these snippets of gold and I, I like that and a lot of the concepts I think stand alone in themselves. And one of the things which I really like was this idea of the 70, 50, 100 because it provided some, some guidance and direction in a simple three numbers. Are you able to share with the, with the listeners what your 70, 50, 100 is? 7, 50, 100. It's now folklore inside our organisation. Uh, it's not an urban legend. It was real. 7, 50, 100 represented... Uh, the simplest of mandates, it was expand our brand into seven states or territories of Australia. It was to deliver $50 million worth of healthcare services. And it was to do that through 100 locations. And at the time when I publicly declared to our, our teams that this was my ambition, this was, this was our mandate for the next three years... We were about 40 locations, about $25 million in services, and I think only three or four states. So in essence, it was an effective doubling of our organisation. In three years, what had taken us 15 years prior to that. So it was ambitious. It was, it was unreasonable, actually. The people around me who loved me but talked truth would say, Jace, you, you are being very unrealistic. We applaud the enthusiasm but you're a crazy man. And they were right. But the beauty of 750-100 is you could get it tattooed on your pinky to fit. <laughs> Everybody could capture it, imagine it. There was clarity. There was absolute clarity on what our end game was. And married with our identity statements. See, see 750-100 told us where we wanted to go, but the identity statements defined how we would go so that we didn't compromise our values or, or dilute uh, who we were or distract ourselves in the process because process and results you know they're, they're, they're equally important it's just where 75000 came from it actually it, it actually was something I um, I considered very seriously before I even started the organization and I just never told anybody I was too I was too embarrassed actually to share it with anyone but I wrote it in a journal and I can go back to early um, 2000s and and that's written there I just didn't tell anybody and it wasn't until 2013 that I had the confidence that I had the courage to give it some oxygen and how did the team respond when you came out with this mandate because people close to you said oh crazy man how did the team respond yeah crazy man absolutely crazy man I didn't just pull it out in a typical staff meeting I did it with a little bit of theatrics so I'd just come back from three months out of the business having some R&R and uh, had seriously pondered how I might approach this and in fact formed my own conviction in that three-month absence that yes, we're going for this. Um, and so what I did was I, I sent out mysterious invitations to all of my senior staff, asked them to dress up in black tie. They came to work at um, 8.30 in the morning and Stretch Limo had, was there waiting for them piled them into the to the limo, took them on a bit of a history tour, took them to the first location of our business, which was our home that we had since sold, but there was the garage. Uh, nobody was home, so we quickly snapped a few photos in front of that. Uh, 
then took them to a secluded chateau and proceeded over the next day to unveil to them bits of our history and parts of our identity and my dreaming from a young age and our purposefulness around wanting to make a difference in the developing world and all of these things that co-contributed to our intention. And then I laid it on 750-100. And then they spent the second half of that day <laughs> choking on it, <laughs> asking 100 questions around how and when and who's going to pay for it. And, and at the end of that day, it was a very simple opportunity. I invited those who wanted to come on this next stage of the adventure. I invited them to come with me. Uh, there was no obligation because it was going to get wild. Um, so nobody had to come. I would release you with dignity. I would help you find your next role in another organisation if this wasn't right for you. Nobody uh, felt that they had to do this. There was an invitation and I gave them two weeks to decide. And uh, I, I expected all of them to write to me, not to just give me a flippant yes or no. I wanted them to write their position. And there's one person in particular whose story is recounted in the book who, um, who is representative of many, but uh, she wrote to me, and she wrote with a yes. It was a, it was a resounding yes. She's going to come on this crazy man's journey. But the importance of writing it down for her, it was profound because at multiple times over the next three years, she had to go back to that letter. And remember, this was her decision. This was part of her resolve, not just the crazy man. It was her crazy, her little bit of crazy as well that kind of had invited her in. I've got to ask, did they all sign on for the journey? Everybody that uh, was present that day for that experience of hearing my vision agreed to go on the journey. Three months after that day, two of the only ten were released to another adventure. But a credit to that team, by far the majority were still there three years later. So they endured for the commitment of that 750-100 season. That's a pretty different way of uh, unveiling a big plan. Well, I figured nothing ventured, nothing gained, and I wanted them to understand it wasn't really so much a business strategy as it was a sense of purpose, a sense of calling. A, a vision is one thing, but a calling is another. I was compelled to do this. I'm a praying man. I, I think very carefully about the life we've been given and why we're here, you know, that age-old question of our the meaning of life. I'm very faith-driven and I wanted them to understand this wasn't a commercial strategy. 75100 wasn't about just the simplicity of growing a business and making more money. They needed to understand this is what I felt compelled to do. I must do this. Uh, and the purpose behind it was that we could invest into very disadvantaged communities all around the world and the right people would want to participate in that. So in the book, you talk about this idea of structure and identity. I'm, I'm curious to explore that a little because I, in my experience talking with organisations, they quite often don't put those two words together. I have been misunderstood as being a critic of structure. And if you read my book, uh, maybe in the first couple of chapters, you would understand why, because I go pretty hard and I do set up a bit of a debate or, or a, um, a tension between structure and identity. And in my mind, identity wins every time. So identity is more important than structure. 
if you get to the end of the book, and I grant it, not everybody can endure the book. Um, there's some technical elements in it. But if you get to the end of the book, I hope people realise I'm not against structure at all. Structure is a really important part of effective uh, organisational life. The bit I really don't like, though, about structure is when structure is the master. I don't want structure to be the bit that we serve. I want structure to serve our identity. So our identity is back to those mission, purpose, vision, values and strategy. We are the ones. Organisations are made up of people, not structures. People determine the heart and soul and the purposefulness of why they're there. So the structure needs to be created to adapt to the people, not the other way around. So many times we try and stick fantastic people into imperfect structures and we suck the oxygen out of them and we wonder why they don't perform well. Uh, and it's because structure gets in the way. So my favourite metaphor for this is, uh, is the tent, the camping tent. So 30 years ago when I went camping as a little fella, uh, the tents were A-frame and they had a centre pole. And that was great. That centre pole was crucial. It, it, it held up the tent. But when I would roll out my sleeping bag, gee, it got in the way. You know, I was jammed up against the wall while the pole had centre stage and I couldn't, you know, easily move around the tent. Of course, with technology, we have adapted the tent. Now our poles are on the outside, flexible. Uh, you know, they can adapt to different weather conditions. Uh, and when you get inside the tent, you've got open plan. It's open space. You can move freely within it. So that's a great example of what we've done with outside in, downside up leadership. Our structure, we call one team. Uh, we have structure, but we've moved the poles to the outside to create more freedom on the inside so that we can be who we want to be. So that's the tension. Structure versus identity. Identity should win and structure should exist, but subservient to identity. And in the book, you, you tell a little story about you changing the structure when you came back. And there's a, there's a bit there here where you mentioned, while the cat's away. Mm. It'd be intrigued when I started to read that section. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? So the axiom, while the cat's away, the mouse will play, is, is really just this idea that I stepped out of our business for three months on a well-considered sabbatical. I had two general managers acting in my capacity for my absence. Up to that point, we had a very traditional model. We had a board, me the CEO, two general managers for corporate services and operations, and then a whole swag of senior staff and support team. So very, very predictable, right? Very conventional. Yeah. And uh, in fact, it had, it had enabled, that structure had enabled us to grow from being a million dollar practice to being a let's say, $25 million small network. So it hadn't been ineffective. But in my absence, these two general managers, for any reason you could imagine, because there's a lot of motivations, but they took it upon themselves to use their newly appointed authorities to drive a culture of change in our organisation that essentially the people rebelled against. They were just command and control style, my way or the highway, and they relied not on intelligence and merit to get their proposals through. They just relied entirely on their position of authority. And what it did was it just wreaked havoc on the culture, on the heart of the teams that they presided over. 
because all of a sudden their opinions didn't matter and they, they just got flattened in the process. So I returned literally to a queue at the door of my office of senior staff who felt that they had been undermined, disempowered, overruled by these two individuals, which was just a horrible welcome home, particularly given I was about to launch 750100 and I needed solidarity, I needed energy, I needed unity. So what became apparent to me was I'm going to have to understand structure a little differently. And that was my learning. That, that, that um, little comment I made about structure and identity, that wasn't a thought I'd already considered. That wasn't a learning I'd already made. It was while the cat was away and then on my return, I had to really reflect, how could our structure turn on us like that? And it's because we had misplaced the priority on structure and we had lost the essence of our people. And so in launching 75100, it was a bit of a dual proposal. We're going to go for this crazy ambitious goal, but the rider is we're going to do something radical with our structure. I'm going to shake us up. So you can imagine uh, <laughs> the consideration then. Mm. It's really interesting that you say that because it's just, just one of the things we talk about is, you know, Max John C. Maxwell's five level of leadership and the lowest level being position. But it's interesting when you say that because even when you go up the hierarchy of in a role or structure, these are senior people, but they're almost reverted back down to Maxwell's lowest level of leadership, which is ruling from your position. That's the great irony. If you have to say to one of your team members, just do it because I said so, and, and of course we would never use that exact word, but, but that's the spirit of what we're saying. Do it because I'm your boss. Do it because I'm the manager. Do it because I have the authority. You have lost your people. I mean, I mean, even in the home, if we say to our kids, and I'm sure many of us have, myself included, just do it because I'm dad. We have just disempowered ourselves from a more effective form of leadership. It's a much more compelling position to say, let me explain to you why I think this is in your best interest, why this is going to serve our greater good, why this will propel us toward our goal and invite them into it. That's leadership. So Maxwell, I'm familiar with his five steps. He's an amazing contributor to this topic of leadership. I think positional leadership is the weakest, lowest, most illegitimate form of leadership, so much so it's probably management. So one of the things I liked about the, the, the book was that at the end of each sort of chapter, you give these transferable principles. And, and when we were chatting just before we uh, started the podcast, you mentioned that the, the book and some of the concepts uh, may not be for everyone, but it's the principles which you're hoping people will, will uh, take on board. So, so why did you want to make sure that each chapter had these transferable principles? What was important about that? I wanted people to understand that our story is just that. It's our story. One team is the model we created. And if I am honest in my metaphor of technology in the opening paragraph of the book, uh, then I have to stay true to that, and that is that even our model will keep evolving. It will keep changing. In fact, uh, this book has, has um, only just been launched, but we're already on to version 4.0 in our organisation because, you know, this is now 2018, and I started this journey five years ago. So every year we review it and tweak it and change it. But the bit that doesn't change are the principles that underlie it. So the, the most significant part of this book is not that people 
read about our one team structure and apply it carte blanche. That would be a really disappointing outcome. What I've tried to do is tell our story is just our experience with its flaws and mistakes and wrong turns, but glean out of it for people the lessons that we learned that we carry forward, no matter what iteration of the model. So I'd be really surprised if in the next couple of years, lots of one team models spring up all over corporate Australia. I'd be really surprised. I'd be intrigued, but I'd be surprised. But what I hope is that some of these 50 learnings are being pushed and pressed and given more light of day because I think they're the truisms that no matter what structure you adopt, shaped to your identity, the truisms will be the, the, real, the real value. When I was reading, I, I just came across a line in, in your book which really resonated with me. And the reason it resonated with me is because people often say to me, Julian, what's the secret source of being a great leader? You've worked with thousands of leaders, you've trained hundreds of leaders, what's the secret source? And I, I did a lot of re a lot of thinking after getting that question. And I could never really put my finger on it because I've met so many leaders that were really good. But then it came to me that the only thing they had in common was this idea that they claimed their leadership. They claimed it. They said, no, I'm a leader, I'm for good or for bad, I'm a leader, I'm going to take everything that comes with it. So when you wrote this line, you could say, I'm a leadership enthusiast, but bang, I've got to dig a bit deeper into that. So why are you a leadership enthusiast? Well, why I'm one is a little bit of a different question to am I one? Because, you know, we, we reflect on who we are by looking in the rear vision mirror and looking introspectively. And I think the acknowledgement that I have is, as you rightly said, for good or for bad, for blessing or for curse, uh, clearly one of the most crucial elements of the life I have chosen is to press into leadership. Um, somebody said to me the other day when, when I was going through a tough patch, oh, you know, that's just the curse of leadership. And, and there is some lonely and very despairing aspects to leadership. But that's not to discard the blessings of leadership because there's some amazing, fulfilling aspects of leadership. So I have just decided leadership is one of those expressions of life that I want to continuously learn and continuously press into. So, so I'm enthusiastic about leadership. What makes somebody an enthusiastic leader, I think, is understanding your convictions. And then it's almost impossible not to lead. See, the people who struggle with leadership are the people who can't answer their why. They, they don't know their what. They don't know their how. If you ask them for an opinion on something, they oscillate that there's no real sense of clarity in their life. But you talk to someone who's got clarity and conviction on something, it's not even a conscious decision to lead. They just lead. They are infectious. They are influential. They are compelling. And they are really the attributes of leadership. And, and I actually think I carry some very strong convictions about life and about what I'm here to do. And so... I can't help but lead, for good or for bad. And you talk about this idea of collaboration and you, and you provide the, the readers with this blueprint. And there's, there's five steps to this blueprint. And I'm going to sort of just ask for a bit of a snapshot on each one. And, and the first one is this vertical hierarchy had to be dismantled. So is that something which was really challenging for you? Or why was that the first step in the blueprint? 
So the blueprint came about during the incubation stage of one team, this, this new model we built. In fact, I rarely refer to what we did as a restructure. I always talk about it as a leadership revolution. But the revolution hadn't happened yet. We were in the in-between stage. I had declared 75100 and I had signposted for the team that we can't keep serving under this structure. This structure is, is stifling us. And then we went into this period of intense consultation, roundtables and, and whiffle sessions and con you know just exploring all the possibilities. And what came out of that discussion was this blueprint. And one of the first things, as you've just noted, is we recognise the vertical hierarchy, what, what I call now the corporate caste system, where you have the untouchables at the bottom and, and you, know, you have the, you know, the supreme and the almighty at the top. That just doesn't engender anything close to the culture and work style that we wanted to uh, engage in. So it just made sense. We had to dismantle it. Yeah, yeah, that's scary, but how can you say one thing and live in a structure that's so ad adverse or contrary to it? So we just had to dismantle it. Mm. So that was a blueprint. We hadn't done it yet. We didn't know how we were going to do it, and we didn't know what we were going to replace it with, but we just knew it had to go. Mm. Which very clearly leads on to the second point of your blueprint, which was you stripped every one of their titles. So overnight, overnight, everybody lost that egocentric, incomplete, ambiguous description that meant to summarise who they are. So national marketing manager, evaporated, gone. Uh, me, CEO, poof, gone. Titles all, all across our team, they, we, we just found them as tent poles in the middle that just got in the way because we didn't want anybody relying on a inept title to give them any more influence in a decision than the merit of their suggestion. And so, you know, we, we workshop that. I mean, that's a big call, right? Huge. You know, that just blows up their LinkedIn profiles <laughs> and their resumes and their job prospects for the next 20 years. And of course, we had those conversations. The bravery of the team that were part of this construction, they were like, you know what, you're right. Titles are getting in the way. So at least for now, we're all just peers. We're all just colleagues. We're gonna to work together, collaboration. Third part of your blueprint was team meetings needed to be rescripted. So meetings are a, a bane of many leaders' existence. One, so. of my, one of my favorite quotes, I think it was Patrick Lencioni in his book, Death by Meetings. I think he said, um, meetings are where people take minutes but waste hours. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know, how true that is. So our meetings, we got to a point in that traditional hierarchical model that preceded this blueprint where most of the meetings happened by the elite few behind closed doors, secret men's and women's business, and we would disappear for an hour and we'd come back and, you know, we were going right before the meeting and now we're going left and nobody knew why. They just knew three people wandered off into the corner, the executive team, and they, they made a determination. And, you know, others had spent weeks, maybe months, working on projects only to learn that somebody else less close to the action had just you know, torpedoed it or, or changed direction on it. And then we had staff meetings where, you know, the collective were in the room, but it was only the same few that would talk because they were dominant, they were, you know, not inclusive, uh, they would bark at you if you opposed them. And so most people sat there saying little 
exasperated by the process, wasting time and money. It's expensive to run a staff meeting when you think about the combined salaries in the room uh, because there was no free speech. So I just looked at that and thought, as did the team around me at the time, we said, we're dysfunctional in our team meetings. It's not that we're not getting stuff done, it's just we aren't necessarily getting the right stuff done and we're not engaging people in a constructive process in our meetings. So we need to completely rethink our meetings, rescript them, change the um, composition of our meetings and uh, make sure that you only attend if you've got something to say and every voice counts. Can you talk about this idea in point number four, which is we wanted one team? And we're going to explore the whole one team thing in a minute, but what was the sort of the idea behind this bit? Don't you think it's funny that in organisations we actually have the language of the marketing division and the finance division and the sales division? Who wants a divided team? I mean, it's just dumb. Uh, I don't know where that comes from. And we have departmental budgets, and then we have, you know, we have the HR team, and we have the strategy team. And if you've got two teams, that to me sounds like a competition. Like, what's going on with that? It just, it just kind of smacked of. It's just dumb. It's just dumb. I have no better word to describe it. So, what we realised is we just want one team. We have one purpose. We're playing all. We're all playing the same game, and we're all on the same team. Whether you're in HR, finance, sales, marketing, strategy, doesn't matter. We have different positions on the team, different skills on the team, but we're one team. And of course, that's where the namesake came from. That that became like the the chant. We're one team. So let's stop fighting against each other, these silos and turf wars, and let's just act like one. So so that's kind of that was one of those. Um, those little uh, sentiments that bubbled up and became profound in our journey. And the fifth uh, step in your blueprint is this idea that fairness had to be restored. So what, what, what wasn't fair? Well, it's unfair that people in a corporate caste system have privileges that they haven't earned. It's unfair that at the top of the tree if the whole team performs well, only a few get a bonus. And it's equally unfair if the whole team falls over on an objective because little Johnny in that hierarchical system right at the bottom neglected his role to play, but he never got held account, only the manager got beaten up. So there was unfairness at all levels. And what we kind of made a real point of in our musing together as a team was we wanted fairness, even though we accepted we would never have equality. So equality is sameness. We're not all the same. So we won't all necessarily have the same skills, same experience, or even earn the same money. So that, that would be equality, egalitarian, um, doesn't work. But we do want equity, fairness, which means people get what they deserve, both pro and con. <laughs> If you messed up, we're holding you personally accountable. And if you contributed to the prize, we want you to get a fair cut of the action. And so we recognised the old model, the old structure wasn't fair to either ends of the spectrum. So whatever we built, it had to be fair. Which is a perfect sort of uh, segue, I suppose, into this whole idea of one team. And you even have your own logo. We have our own logo. Just for one team. 
we do because of course we you know there are so many pieces of documentation inside an organization and if we could just brand up internally a simple icon or picture or brand to represent the spirit of what we are talking about you know to, to condense the 200 pages of this book into an icon uh, so that it immediately um, triggered people uh, that's the power of imagery so yeah we created an icon in fact we had a lot of fun with this because uh, when you read the book you'll realize we we don't call it a flat structure because it's definitely not it's not an inverted pyramid for a long time we didn't know what shape it was but eventually we realized actually what we're building here is a spherical organizational model it has no top or bottom no left or right and at its core is the mission and we're, we're all serving the core and so it, it became like a planetary system so we had our axis which was our identity we had our core which was our strategic intentions and then we had our mount mantle which is the the real belly of a, of a planet's cross-section that was really the functions, the tactics, the, the skills of the organization, all enveloped in the crust, which is the periphery, which was really just our governance. And then we had these orbiting moons. And so it sounds kind of, it was fun. It was our planetary model. So one team is best summarized as an ecosystem, a living ecosystem of highly collaborative, self-led, peer accountable colleagues in this planetary system. Planet, planet one team and you know we don't take ourselves too seriously like we have fun with that but um, you know, it's, it's it's kind of it's it's Star Wars you know we can we can enjoy the, the the comic relief around that but actually it's a very serious proposition um, self-led highly collaborative peer accountable colleagues that's one team and and there's a lot in that yeah there is and Hearing you explain it like that, have other organisations heard you explain it like that and thought, why the hell are we operating the way we are and attempted to implement that idea? Well, well, this is the precursor to the book, right? So everywhere I went and any time the media did an article or any time at a barbecue somebody asked me how, how life is in the business, it, it was almost impossible not to give something away about the uniqueness of how we worked and they'd latch on to that they'd take the bait and they'd be so curious about some of these sentiments these ethos and and then that would be a runaway train and so yes lots of people have shown interest and thought hey i can reverse engineer that into our organization but it's not as simple as just the semantics you've, you've got to build it from the ground up inside outside in downside up that, that, that's the that's why i call that in the book it's it's a it's a it's a revolution. And so lots of people have taken the, the cheap words, sought to apply them, got disillusioned very quickly and thought, this doesn't work, you are a crazy man. But that's why I, I go to great lengths to tell the story. It's a case study. It's 200 pages of two years of work to get there. We didn't get there overnight. We might have stripped titles overnight, but then we had to rebuild a new way of life. And to, to kind of um, stay on that journey is, is a constant leadership imperative. You also talk about this idea of the strategic target. I hadn't, in my experience, heard those two words put together. Normally, strategy is one thing and what their targets are another thing. So, so talk to me about the combination and what it all means. There's no doubt management and leadership literature, it becomes a war of words, right? 
you know, we, we all just stick different words to similar sentiments to try and create some paradigm shift at some level. For me, strategic target was a very specific differentiation from our identity statements. So this will sound strange. I hope, I hope you and your listeners understand this, but my view on targets is best summarized by this. I date the target, but I marry the mission. So by that, I think you can read between the lines, by that I mean the mission is the non-negotiable bit. Like that's a commitment for life. Uh, I'm married. I'm a, I'm a one-woman man, right? That is not... We'll have our tough times, but there's there's no back doors to that commitment. We are in this till death do us part. But I'll date the target, which means uh, let's go and have a dinner, find out whether we're compatible, whether we're right for each other, and if we're not, it's been a lovely evening, but you know, don't call me and I won't call you, and you and you move on. And you have to have a few dates with people before you decide who you're going to marry. So for me, the target is this negotiable element of our intention. It's strategic. Like it, it, it definitely is a battle plan, but things are going to change. So 75100 for me was a target. It wasn't my mission. It wasn't my identity. If I got, if I exceeded it or I fell short of it, it wasn't going to change who I was or how we should work. The identity would still be intact, but we either had the wrong time frame, or we made some mistakes, or we needed to uh, deploy a different tactic. That's okay. That's all negotiable. So I think of the strategic target really as just three-year time horizons where we bring a theme or an emphasis to the organization that is congruent with our identity, but it's going to evolve. And what it does is it just focuses for a season what the next hill we have to climb is. You talk about culture. It's one of the things which a lot of leaders talk about. And they say, we're after this type of culture or that type of culture. And then when you talk to the people down in the ground floor, they say, well, that's that's not what we experience. And you've got these idea of these unwritten ground rules which make up culture. We're able to explore a little of these unwritten ground rules. So unwritten ground rules is not my phrase. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty well-regarded uh, description of what true culture is. But I, li I like that description. It's this idea, it's not what's written in the systems manual or on the plaque on the wall that defines our culture, it's how we behave. It's, it's, culture is all about behaviour. And uh, I quote some statistics in the book that CEOs are ridiculously prone to exaggerating the positivity of their culture. And I don't think it's because they're outright lying, even though they probably have a suspicion that it's not as good as they want it to be. I think it's because they generally don't have line of sight to all of the behaviours inside the organisation. They don't have visibility. And so they would be, and I am, horribly shocked often when I take the time to dig a little and drop some probes and think, hey, we shouldn't be behaving like that because that's not who we want to be. That That's a reflection of our culture. And if anybody expects me to manage, so I'm going to use that word intentionally, manage the culture of 600 people across 100 locations, uh, you know, in the size of geography of Australia, and be across culture, they are setting them up for disappointment. That, that is an unreasonable expectation of one person. 
I need all 600 people to want to peer account each other around culture. The best thing I can do when I add a new team member to, to our organisation is employ someone others want to work with and, and that this person is going to hold them to account along the journey. I got an email from someone recently inside one of our teams and they said, Jace, I really think you need to do something about our culture in this area. And I wrote back, and of course I understood his encouragement. He's, he, he was bringing to my attention a concern. But my reply was, but if you think I can do something about culture, why can't you? I need you also to own this cultural element. And that's where this peer accountability is so crucial. So culture is important, but we kid ourselves if we think it's all top down. Uh, we need it to be bottom up. We need it to be inside out. We need it driven from every direction. And I'll take responsibility to lead it, but I'm not going to take responsibility to manage it. And how do you find, or what sort of challenge is it to lead a culture across so many locations? And as you mentioned before, Australia is a vast country. Yeah. How do, what's, the, what's the big challenge there for you in terms of leading that culture? Because I know that silos occur when different sites, generally with the clients we work with. So how, how do you lead that culture? So there's lots of inhibitors. There's what you've just mentioned, which is the tyranny of distance. There's time lag. So I say something today in this office, by the time it gets to the coalface, uh, you know, in Auckland, New Zealand, it's uh, taken a, a day, a week, a month. There's the broken telephone, you know, the game we used to play. It's, it's what I call the great dilution effect. So even if I set it today, by the time it's gone through a few iterations and channels of people, it's distorted message. Uh, so they're, they're all the obvious inhibitors, not the least of which is if I'm not an exemplar of it. So that's where I say I take responsibility to lead it. So if I am not practicing what I preach, then I'm going to defeat the message before it even gets out of the gate. But there is a, there is a single crucial element of cultural penetration that I, I, I think is the, the most important and that is raising effective leadership at every level of our teams. And, and so uh, there's just no way around it. Um, if we don't have effective leaders in all roles of all aspects of our organisation, we're cooked, we're done for. And so my principle, uh, it's one of the, um, the core values of our organisation is leadership because I expect everybody, even our most junior receptionist who's fresh on the job, who's just out of school, who's 17 or 18 years of age, I expect them to lead, at least lead themselves, hopefully lead the client, stretch themselves to lead their peers and be a positive influence around, around the cultural element in the team they sit in, and probably even lead those who have, um, have influence over them. I mean, leadership is, 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 a, is the indispensable quality if you want good culture. Mm. And one of the things that uh, you mentioned at the very end of the culture chapter in your transferable principles is this idea that to change culture, people need actionable first steps. Mm. So is that something where that you set out for those? Do you expect your other senior leaders to set out what those first steps are for the brand new receptionist? Absolutely. Uh, culture is the buzzword of the decade, maybe even the century, and uh, corporate speakers and authors like you and me and politicians and board members, we all love to throw around the word culture as a sense that it's, it's a panacea to all things going wrong and it's this big black box of solutions. 
but then nothing happens. We, we just throw the words out there. It's rhetoric. So, so my uh, conviction around culture is, yep, except that culture is broken somewhere and we know where and why, but what are we going to do about it? We need a behaviour, an actionable behaviour that we're now all going to agree to and hold each other account around. So if customer service, for instance, is a cultural weakness inside one of your listeners' organisations, I would say, great to call it out. Now, what are the one or two behaviours starting immediately we're going to have a zero tolerance policy around? For instance, we are going to get up out of our chair behind the reception desk and we're going to walk the long way around the counter and we're going to actually shake their hand with no barrier between us and then we're going to usher them to a seat and sit down with them and finish the conversation before getting up and continuing your work. That, that'll change culture um, because it's a behaviour. It's not just a thought. And I can tell whether you're doing it or not. I can see whether you're doing it or not. And if we're all on notice and equally accountable and vulnerable to being uh, picked up on that, wow, that, that, that's, that's not that hard to then start to move the needle on culture. And First delivers steps. a powerful result. It's one-minute management. Yeah. So you can... Exploring your one team a bit more, you have this workflow, which you, which you highlight, and we've we've covered off on on a couple of them, which is your MPV, SV, and your strategic target. But you've got a, a few more there, which I, I'm just curious. How did you how did you come to this this flow that this is the way the business is going to work? That well, we we're not structuralists, right? So uh, we've dispelled that myth already in this conversation. So once we had agreed on behaviours and culture commitments, once we had centred ourselves on identity, once we knew who we wanted to grow up and become as an organisation, we realised the structure needed to be reimagined. And so this workflow that I speak to is really just an incarnation of probably principles lots of organisations work off. But the bit that had influenced me the most over the near 20 years now of me running my own organisation was Kaplan and Norton's work around the balanced scorecard. I'd always been enamoured by the simplicity of that, even though the book is a really hard read. Um, the concept is really simple. It took me two attempts to get through that book. So I recommend the book, but I also think you need to take it in a piecemeal approach because it's, it's heavy going. But so, so the scorecard for me was a very crucial influence around styles of holding people to account and setting agenda and workflow. So I wanted that part of our new structure still. Everything else kind of is just an enabler for that. Uh, and I, th I ride Harleys like your dad. And, you know, it's a very simple motorbike. I have an accelerator and a brake. <laughs> and, you know, I have, I have red lights that come up on the dashboard if there's a problem. And otherwise, I just have a speedo that um, shows me how much fun I'm having. And so in, in our business, I just wanted a workflow that showed those two simple metrics, the bits that we can keep pressing into to accelerate, which is taking us to our goals, and the red lights on the dashboard that would show us we've now actually taken that corner too fast and we're in danger. Quality control needs to kick in because you're going to risk something in the, the, the substance of your business and we need to take caution. So that was the simplicity. And the, the workflow that I put in the book there is really just the incremental steps to enunciate that a bit more. Did you find the balanced scorecard, do you have to make many tweaks to it to, to make it fit back in motion? Yeah, 
Kaplan and Norton would be horrified because <laughs> I've distorted their purest work and stretched it in so many different ways and contorted it. I've turned it outside in, downside up. But I think that there was a board member uh, in the early years who really encouraged me to make it my own. So he, he also had, had great success with the scorecard, but thought, Jace, if it doesn't quite plug and play like you need it to, take the concepts, take the transferable principles and just make it your own. And so that's what I've done with the scorecard. So ours looks very different, uh, but it still works on that premise of cause and effect. It works on four quadrants, and it works on the idea that uh, reading your financial statements in retrospect is not the most intelligent way to run your business. Look at future value creation as the real driver. Talk about people being the reason in your chapter, which is aptly tied people. So why are people the reason? Because they are the reason. They are the only cause we should be fighting for. It's all about people. Life is all about people. Like This is my res resounding conclusion. This is one of the convictions at the core of my worldview. Uh, I'm not saying it's anybody else's, but it is absolutely, categorically, undeniably, irrefutably mine. It is all about people. Uh, and the only reason I want to run a scaled, ethical, profitable business is so that I can engage and enable people more. Um, so money is important, but not more important. Time is important. We live finite lives, but only be, time's only important to me because I want to invest in people. Physical health is important. I'm a, I'm a clinician, for crying out loud. But health is only important because I want to live longer and live better so that I can make a difference in the lives of people. So for me, it is all about people. It's not about structure. Structure is the least significant bit of what we've created in this process. It's people. And that doesn't mean I get it right all the time. I, I hurt people and violate people far more than I'd like to admit. But I need to be attentive to that because people are the reason. Mm. And, and you talk about change and this idea of soul equity. I was fascinated by that phrase, soul equity. So I was really playing off this, uh, this adage of sweat equity. And, and I think in entrepreneurial circles, we hear that phrase a lot, sweat equity. You know, for the first four years of my business life, I invested every single cent I had and then some. And what's the sum? It was my soul, right? Like I didn't take a wage for the first two years of, of, of my, my starting of my business. For the next two years I worked, I calculated for about 37 cents an hour, right? Uh, people forget that you are investing a lot more than just money. It's our time. It's our personhood. It's the opportunity costs of not... Um, you know, lying on the couch of an evening watching your favourite TV show. It's the relationships that you have to carefully balance and manage in the process. It's the fact that you only have a finite container of energy and you get to choose where you invest that. That's, that's the sole equity. And if you want to really be an agent of change, if you want to create something out of nothing, if you want to lead a cause, if you want to incite a revolution in your workplace, it's not going to cost you just money. It's not going to cost you just time. It's not going to cost you just energy, although it will cost you all those things. It won't just cost you reputation because that, that'll pay a price too. It's going to cost you a piece of your soul. And if you're not prepared to invest that, 
you won't reap the full benefit. I describe those couple of years that this book recounts as the toughest two years in my working life. And, and they were. They, they still take the prize as being the toughest two years because it required more of me than I've ever invested into anything. I think a lot of people underestimate what it takes, don't they? I think you're right. Mm -hmm. um, but you only have to talk to somebody who has seen, ventured and conquered and you'll find yourself amongst a familiar set of stories. It all, it all cost something, uh, but the prize always outweighed the price. Mm. You talk about the 10 attributes that best represent authentic outside in, downside up leadership. And, and as we get to, towards the end here, we, we don't have time to go through all 10. But I, I'm, I just want to touch on the first two. And the first one is create a champion team not a team of champions. And the second one is overlead, undermanage. I'd just like to explore those two, if we can. The 10 attributes of outside in, downside up leadership, which is the last chapter of the book, really is a summary of everything I've learned and all of these principles I want to carry forward into every iteration of our model. And that idea of creating a champion team that's again, that's not my language. Your listeners will have heard that as a bit of an axiom in uh, leadership literature all over. Uh, but it just so profoundly captured our experience that I couldn't not put it there. Uh, we don't want a team of superstars and rainmakers where you have some lone wolves who can absolutely go and get the job done but disregard the other eight or nine people that sit around them. Because there's no way ever in an enduring scenario that a single person can outdo the contribution of eight or nine. It just doesn't compute. So we were prepared to settle for a whole bunch of team members who were a little above average and, and had an appetite to grow than for a single one or two uh, outstanding people that would subdue the others. And so this was a, a very intentional decision. I've let go some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Um, and it hurts because their talent is off the charts, but they couldn't work in a team. So we put team above the individual. So that's the first one. The second one is this idea of overleading and undermanaging. And that is my phrase. So I stole the champion team one, but I created this one, overlead and undermanage, because it was the best use of words to convey for me the heart sentiment. I want leaders more than I want managers. We detitled managers. We don't have managers in our organization. Now, we have people who exercise managerial skills, but they don't get to hide behind a title of management to make people do what they otherwise didn't want to do. But we want leaders at every level of our organization. And I'm quite happy for them all to call themselves a leader. Because one of the um, culture commitments is lead when you are naturally the right person to do so. Take charge. But you're not going to do it based on a title. You're going to do it based on the merit of your idea or your experience or the solution you're bringing. So this idea of overleading and undermanaging is crucial. Lead more, manage less, and people will love you for it. See, people love when you lead more. They hate it when you manage more. Mm, yeah. So <laughs> this, this just it. feeds the right culture. Yeah. When we get towards the end here, leading teams is a dangerous occupation. 
It's a good line, isn't it? <laughs> it's a fantastic line to open the chapter with. Yeah. So why is it dangerous? Because it's fraught with ambushes and um, saboteurs. Uh, Sun Tzu calls it the art of war, doesn't he? Yep. That's his classic book. And I think leading teams, when you engage with people, you have to become very vulnerable. You expose your heart. Your frailties and failures are on the on, on show for all the world to see. Um, I can't hide in my team, so my leadership attributes, good and bad, are very conspicuous. And so it is a dangerous occupation when you step up and say, "Hey, hey, team, I'm, I'm going to point you in the direction we need to go. Come follow me. Let's take the hill." Uh, some of us are going to get shot. First guy through the door normally is the one that gets shot. You stick your head up, it's going to get blown off. And so I've got my war stories, I've got my, my bruises and my scars, but it's not going to dissuade me because leadership is where you can make the greatest impact. If you have a conviction, you can't help but lead. So I just want to encourage the reader as we get to the end of the book that nothing about what I write is simple, nothing about it is easy, nothing about it is for the faint-hearted, but I still encourage them to engage in it. It will be dangerous, but fortune favours the brave. Final question in relation to the book, and, I, and I, this really resonated with me because it's almost as though you're, you've put forward this, this model, it's quite controversial, it's quite different, but then you don't profess that it's the only way or the way, and you acknowledge that by uh, talking about a specific challenge that you have, and I think that's a really nice way to finish it. And it's about this idea of how do you facilitate individuals through a self-directed path of career progression. It's one of the big challenges with your model. It's, um, it's always sad to finish on the challenge, uh, Julian. You're going to have to wrap it up with a positive. But um, <laughs> I, I guess the, the, the message at the end here is that please don't think we have worked it all out. Please don't think we are a perfect business with a perfect model, that we've discovered the holy grail, and all you need to do is do what we do. That, that would be such a misrepresentation of my message. Uh, and we are constantly struggling with better iterations of this uh, application of the truisms. The, the transferable principles. And yes, the, the obvious challenge we have faced in dismantling hierarchy and titles is people have lost that prescriptive ladder of promotion where they get to take step by step through pay grades that they can almost self-govern, they can see from a distance and, and, it, and it's very, it's very um, uh, um, obvious. But there's a flip side to that disadvantage and that is that for the right people, we now have blue sky and open conversations about creating new roles that never could have existed or been imagined. And you get to step into that. You get to co-create your own pathway. And uh, you get to sit down with us and tell us what you love and what you're good at. And who wouldn't want a job that has those two elements? Doing what you love and doing what you're good at, which aren't necessarily the same thing, but are inextricably linked. And if we can understand how you can add value to our organisation doing what you love and what you're good at, then of course we're going to reward you fairly for that. And that can be a progression. It's probably not a linear progression. And it's certainly not a predictable progression. And it's not going to be the same as anyone else's progression. But we can choose your own adventure here. And I think for the right people that just lights them up. So it's a challenge. 
but we're not done yet. So as we keep exploring that, I think we find new ways to live out these principles, to give people freedom and to add value to our mission. Mm. And so if people want to find out more about you or they want to find out more about Back in Motion, where should they go? You can go to jasontsmith.com.au. Uh, most of um, the work that I do in all of the different dimensions is captured on that website. There is a page with um, uh, that will direct you to book sales. There's a, uh, a print-on-demand. Most bookstores have these books as of November 2018. There's an e-book online now and an audio book coming. So jasontsmith.com.au. Okay. And to finish up on this positive note, any last words on leadership? My last thought would be, if you've heard nothing else or retain nothing else from this conversation is lead with conviction or better than that because leadership can be an intimidating word just live with conviction and if you live with a clear understanding of what it is you are here to achieve you will without realizing it become a very effective leader just because of the passion of your conviction live with conviction on that note, Jason T. Smith, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. It's been a pleasure, Julian. Thank you. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.